millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Dallas, Texas. Dallas is on the Trinity River in north-central Texas. From its humble beginnings as a trading post, Dallas has emerged to become the fourth-largest metropolitan area in the United States with 7.5 million residents. The city was officially founded by John Neely Bryan in November of 1841. Bryan picked the best spot for a trading post to serve the population migrating into the region. From there, the population continued to grow and businesses thrived. Dallas is probably best known throughout the world for the tragedy of November 22, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated while riding in a motorcade through Dealey Plaza, only yards from the site where John Neely Bryan had settled in 1841. In 1993, Dealey Plaza was declared a National Historic Landmark District. Most notably, one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence is on display in the downtown public library. It's referred to as the lost copy because this document didn't surface until 1968 when it was found boxed up during the closing of Leary's Bookstore in Philadelphia. Soon after being found, it was auctioned off for more than $400,000 to a pair of Dallas executives. In 1982, with the help of 15 additional donors, the city of Dallas acquired the treasured document. But in 2010, another lost artifact was unexpectedly found, but this one wasn't known on a national scale. It did, however, provide a key piece of the puzzle in the gruesome murder of one young college co-ed. In 1984, 20-year-old Angela Simota, who went by Angie, was a junior at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. She was double majoring in electrical engineering and computer science at a time when few women did that. Angie's mother, however, was a strong role model and an accomplished businesswoman in the area of property development and investments. She sent Angie to the Hockaday School, a prestigious all-girls school, prior to her admission to SMU. Angie was the youngest of four children, born to Betty Ruth and Frank Samoda, but her father died when Angie was just a baby. By all accounts, Angie was happy and active. She was also the social chair of her sorority, Zeta Tau Alpha, and worked part-time for Texas Instruments, so she was definitely a young woman on an upward trajectory. Angie and her boyfriend Ben had been dating exclusively since January 1984. Ben worked in construction and was managing a project in Dallas during the time they dated. Angie worked very hard on her academics and enjoyed her social life when she could. On Columbus Day, Friday, October 12, 1984, Angie invited Ben to go out with her, Russell Buchanan, and Anna Kadala, who went by Anita. That weekend was the Texas OU game, and the streets were crowded with fans and hotels were booked. 
Ben had to get up for work early the next morning, so he decided to stay home that night. That evening, Ben received a call from Angie asking him to get her and her friends into a private back room at a club called the Rio Room, where Ben had a membership. Kath, this was a place to see and be seen. Eventually, the trio got into the club, but apparently it was because someone who worked there recognized Angie, not because Ben had made a phone call. Around 1.30 in the morning, Angie knocked on the door of Ben's apartment and woke him up. She said she was there to rub it in his face that he had to work and she wanted to come by and bug him on her way home. It was a playful conversation and Angie left after chatting for a short time. Kath, when I read about that, I was like, oh, remember when infatuation made you not care about losing sleep? Yep. You'd stay up all night talking and you'd be like, I know I have to get up at six and it's only three. Right. (laughs) But it's okay. But he doesn't want to hang up yet. So I'm not going to be the first one to do it. (laughs) Totally. So 15 minutes after Angie left, she called Ben and said, talk to me. It was a strange call and the conversation was disjointed and Angie was rambling and seemed nervous. Ben could hear something in the background and asked Angie twice what the noise was. She told him that she had allowed a man into her condo to use the bathroom and to make a phone call. Ben heard Angie say, oh, the bathroom's down the hall. Then Angie asked Ben if he thought there was a payphone at the convenience store located near her apartment, and he said, yeah, there probably is. Ben could hear Angie relay the information to the man, but could not hear the man's response. Angie then said, I'll call you back, and hung up. That was the last conversation Ben ever had with Angie. After waiting several minutes without a callback, Ben called Angie but got no answer. He got dressed and drove to her condo, which was about 10 minutes away. And on the way, Kath, he called Angie multiple times from a car phone in his work truck, but he got no answer. Which, by the way, is super advanced for 1984, having a car phone. No kidding. And those were expensive, too. Angie did not answer Ben's call, which, of course, was making him panic. He got to her condo around 2 a.m. and banged on the front door. It was locked and he got no response. He checked the back door, but it was also locked. Ben then called again on his phone and he could hear it ringing inside Angie's place, but nobody answered. and There was no movement. You know, Kath. When I read about this, in my mind, because obviously it's not a cell phone, it's a car phone, and she's in a condo complex, I kind of envisioned him as picking up his car phone, dialing her number, leaving it off the hook, and and then running running to... Yeah, okay. That's the same thing I pictured, but they didn't specify. Right. Ben then drove to the convenience store Angie had mentioned in their brief telephone call. She wasn't there, so he came back to her condo and looked for her car, and there it was in the parking lot, and that was when Ben called the police. Audio recordings showed Ben's call came into the Dallas police at 2.17 a.m. Two officers were dispatched and met Ben outside the condo at 2.40 a.m. Because it appeared that there were no exigent circumstances to justify kicking in the door, officers waited for a key to Angie's condo from the manager. And I'm just going to disagree right now that there were not exigent circumstances. In 1984, maybe it wasn't the level that warranted that. But based on that phone call, I'm saying no. And thank you. You're welcome. The more you know. (laughs) (laughs) When police finally got the keys and went inside, Ben remained just inside Angie's front door as her condo was being searched. When the police went in, the first thing they noticed was one of Angie's black heels was on the living room floor. When they walked into the bedroom, the other black heel was found next to the bed. On the bed, 
Police found Angie's lifeless body lying face up with her eyes open. She was nude, her legs were hanging off the bed, and her chest was a bloody mess. Her clothing, which was not ripped, was also lying next to the bed. And Kath, I read somewhere that when they went in and they saw one black heel in the living room, both officers were like, uh, who takes off only one shoe? Yeah. They knew it was a bad sign. Officers found a smudge of blood on the light switch, shower curtain, and bathtub, leading them to believe the killer tried to wash himself off. The scene was so brutal, Kath, that one of the officers characterized Angie's body as appearing to have her heart cut out. And when looking for further clues, it appeared as though the phone had been wiped clean. A distraught Ben was formally interviewed within two hours. He gave police a written statement of what happened and consented to searches of his truck and apartment. He also gave hair, blood, saliva samples, and allowed officers to do a fingernail scrape. But he drew the line at taking a lie detector test. An autopsy was performed within 12 hours by Dr. Gilliland. Angie suffered 18 stab wounds to the chest and breast area with a single-edged knife or knife-like object. Because of blood smeared on her face and neck, it appeared that a hand or some other object had covered Angie's face while she was being stabbed. The stab wounds were done with considerable force, some entering her heart and lungs. Semen was obtained from Angie's body, suggesting intercourse at or near the time of her death. There was no external trauma to Angie's face or genitalia, and her blood alcohol level was determined to be 0.09. Now police had the job of piecing together Angie's movements, hoping for clues. There was no sign of force entry into her condo. One of Angie's knives from her set was missing and assumed to be the murder weapon. Detectives were able to lift prints from the bathroom and bedroom, but none were bloody. Ultimately, the prints were identified as Angie's except for one unidentified palm print. Although they did try to lift bloody prints from Angie's thighs, they were not successful. No foreign hairs were found on her body, clothing, or bedding. Based on the position of her body, detectives believed that Angie's attacker was on top of her during the knife attack, was a fairly large man, and that he was right-handed. And Kath, what they were saying in the articles that I read is that there was blood spatter on her pillow, her walls, that kind of thing, but not on the lower half of her body. So they figured he was straddling her or something. And large enough to block any spatter. Exactly. Okay. The female friend that went out with Angie on the night she was murdered, Anita, went to talk to investigators and recount the day's activities. She told them that she and Angie went to lunch with one of their professors, and then they went back to Angie's condo and took a nap. They planned to go out that evening, and Angie put on a black silk jumpsuit and black pumps. Angie's friend, Russell Buchanan, met them at Angie's condo, but he realized he was underdressed, and they drove him back to his place so he could change. The three of them went out to Bennigan's restaurant and then to two nightclubs, Studebaker's and the Rio Room. Anita told police that Angie drank, but not excessively because she was driving. They left the Rio room sometime between midnight and 12.30. Angie had to be up early to make the 90-minute drive to Waco for the Texas OU game, so she didn't want to stay out too late. She dropped Russell off first and then took Anita back to her dorm, dropping her off between 12.45 and 1.30 in the morning. The police investigation initially focused on four persons of interest. 
Ben McCall, Angie's boyfriend, Lance Johnson, who was a former boyfriend, Patrick Barlow, who was someone who was known to have a crush on her, and Russell Buchanan, the man she went out with that night. Although Angie's boyfriend Ben would not take a lie detector test, there was no blood or hair detected under his fingernails, so investigators eliminated him as a suspect. Lance, the old boyfriend, admitted to threatening Angie with a knife once before, but his parents confirmed he was at their house in Amarillo at the time of her murder. The third suspect, Patrick, was a student at SMU. Now, Kath, I believe his name was brought up by Russell, the fourth suspect and the guy who was out with Angie that night. Russell apparently told investigators that Patrick had a crush on Angie and that he recalled Angie saying that she had received harassing notes from a guy named Patrick. Detectives, however, were able to eliminate Patrick because they confirmed that he was nowhere near Angie's condo on the night she was murdered. Russell Buchanan was not at home for a couple of days after the murders when police went looking for him. As a result, they became very suspicious of him. According to an article by Christopher Wynn with the Dallas Morning News, Russell received a knock on his front door the Monday following the murder. He opened the door and found himself staring at a Dallas Police Department badge. A detective in a coat and tie stood there, and beside him was a uniformed officer with a shotgun pointed at Russell. The detective said, are you Russell Buchanan? And it took Russell a moment to reply because I think he was probably a little shell-shocked, and he just said, yes. According to this article, at the time Russell was 23 years old, only a year out of Texas A&M's architecture program and interning for a Dallas architecture firm. The detective and officer stepped inside and more police began filing in after them. The detective said, we have some questions to ask you about the murder of Angie Samoda. Russell had no idea what they were talking about. He went bar hopping with Angie Friday night and now they were telling him she was dead. He was shocked. According to the article, detectives treated Russell very aggressively. Mr. Buchanan, you need to stand over here. You need to keep your hands out of your pockets. These officers are going to search your apartment. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Russell didn't, so he allowed them to search. His apartment had junky knives and old spears laying around. As one would. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but Russell explained that his roommate had just returned from a two-week African safari. After they searched the house, Russell was then taken to the police station. He was surprised to see flashing blue and red lights from half a dozen squad cars surrounding his complex. The doors were open and officers were crouched behind them with their weapons drawn. Holy cow! <laughs> I know. I know. Russell said he was being treated like a murderer who had skipped town. After the squad car pulled through the gate to the station at the Dallas Municipal Building, the detective driving headed down a ramp and braked for a moment beside a basement exit and said, does this look familiar? And of course, Russell said no. And the detective said, that's where Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, which obviously is the infamous shooting that occurred after JFK's assassination. I had to ask Kathy what that meant. Like, I didn't take that as the threat being implied. When I read that, I felt like, OK, they're impliedly threatening Russell. Impliedly? Yeah. Is that a word? Yes. Impliedly. Yes. A hundred percent. It's a word. I'm actually calling bullshit on it, but OK. Look it up right <laughs> I now. I don't have a phone in here. OK, we'll look it up later. <laughs> Russell told police that he met Angie a couple weeks before her murder at a happy hour on McKinney Avenue with a group of mutual friends. They exchanged information, and Russell later invited her to lunch to see the new Dallas Museum of Art Building downtown. 
The lunch never happened, but Angie did call Russell Friday night to see if he wanted to go out with her and Anita. Now, Russell knew Angie was dating somebody, but believed that her boyfriend was made aware of who she was going out with that evening. And Kath, I also read somewhere that Russell admitted to detectives during one of his interviews that he had a little bit of a crush on Angie, and I'm sure that didn't help the situation. Oh, I'm sure it didn't. Russell told officers a story that was consistent with Anita's, with only a slight difference in time. His estimate of when they left the Rio room was one hour later than Anita's. He said they left between 1 and 1.30 and then went home. He also confirmed that nobody had been drinking heavily and that neither Anita nor Angie appeared intoxicated. And Kath, even though it was confirmed that on Saturday, the day after the murder, Russell went to a wedding at the Dallas Country Club and then flew to Houston to see family members, his time during the murder was unaccounted for. He told investigators that he became aware of her death when they knocked on his door. Russell furnished blood and saliva samples and also took a polygraph, which he passed. Nonetheless, over the next six months, police continued to pick Russell up, sometimes at home, sometimes at work, and bring him to the station for questioning. They clearly had a bead on him, and they believed with all their heart that he was the guy who murdered Angie. They kept him under surveillance, and it was clear they were trying to make him crack. They then told Russell that they reviewed the polygraph results and actually believed them to be inconclusive, so they wanted him to take another one. Now, Russell's parents had let this be for like six months, Kath, watching him get picked up and taken in and all this kind of stuff, and finally they're like, okay, enough. They hired an attorney for him, and apparently this attorney had a rather notorious reputation for being able to get guilty people off. This, of course, increased police suspicion. The lawyer refused to allow Russell to take a second polygraph, and his cooperation with the police came to an end. Police looked at Angie's vehicle servicemen, carpet installers, landscapers, anyone they could logically think of who would have interacted with her and who would have known where she lived. According to an Associated Press article dated December 13th of 1984 in the Wichita Falls Times, Six investigators worked full-time for weeks with no conclusive suspects. Even the reward of $11,000, which came from Crime Stoppers and the Samota family, brought no real leads. Police continued to trail Russell until he left for London to complete graduate school. The case went cold for almost 23 years. Then, a vision from the grave breathed life back into it. According to a June 26, 2018 article by journalist Sarah McDermott of BBC News, Sheila Wysocki was Angie's roommate for a period of time in college. They met on their first day at SMU in 1982 and shared a room their freshman year. The two became good friends and bonded over the fact that they both grew up without fathers. Sheila said Angie was very academically inclined and would study late into the night. Sheila described herself as being the polar opposite due to her dyslexia. She called Angie's murder the most traumatic event of her life. She never returned to school, and she slept on the floor of her mother's room for a period of time afterward. Shortly after Angie's murder, she went to the Dallas PD and sat down with the detectives. They asked her about Angie's schedule, her shopping habits, and her friends. And Kath, for some inexplicable reason, they showed Sheila a picture of Angie's body. I can't imagine why. 
And Sheila had said that this was an image that has been burned into her memory. It would be like how traumatic to see something like that. From what Sheila understood, the police believed that Russell was the guy who killed Angie. Sheila told detectives that Angie was good at networking and believed that Russell would be a good connection. She said Russell was shy, so Angie invited him to go out with her and Anita on that fateful Friday night. Sheila also told police that Russell made her feel uncomfortable. With encouragement from the police, she started having conversations with Russell to ask him about that night and to see if his story had changed at all. So, Kath, she went out to dinner with Russell one night to help the police, even though her mom was absolutely freaking out about it. She did not want her daughter to put herself in that position. Can you imagine if my daughter was like, hey, mom, there's this guy I think killed my friend and the police want me to go to dinner with him? I'd be like, hell no. Exactly. Yeah. So I can understand Sheila's mom. Russell came and picked her up and they went to a place called August Moon. Sheila said she was nervous and not acting like herself, which is understandable, because she was thinking, I'm sitting next to a murderer. Because, of course, if the police thought he did it, she did too. And, Kath, it wasn't in this article that we just referenced, but I read somewhere that she was mic'd up with detectives at nearby tables when this happened, which makes sense. Yeah, no, that has to happen. They can't be like, oh, yeah, by the way, go check out this murderer and peace out. Give us a call in the morning. Yeah, if you're still alive tomorrow, (laughs) give us a call and let us know what happened. Let us know what happened. (laughs) (laughs) But Russell's story did not change. Sheila said when Russell's parents hired Richard Haynes, nickname Racehorse, Okay, first of all, I don't like when you do that. And I've said that on an episode several times. It's been a long time since I've done that, though. It it has been. And I think probably in this case, who knows where he got the nickname from. Anyways, Sheila said that when Russell's parents hired him to represent Russell, this solidified his guilt in her mind. But she was told by police that there was no physical evidence that they could put on him. And that was why he was not charged. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
fast forward to 2004, this is now 20 years after Angie was murdered. By this time, Sheila was married with two sons and she had moved to Tennessee. Kath, one night as she was doing Bible study, Sheila looked up to see Angie smiling at her. Angie wasn't speaking, she was just smiling. During an interview by Joe Fidgen of BBC World Service, Sheila said that Angie was as real as the microphone in front of him. It was not a dream. Isn't that such a trip? You know what? It is, but it isn't. Because when I was in college and I was having a really hard time, I was at home in my bedroom and I was hugging a pillow crying when all of a sudden I felt arms around me squeezing me as a hug. And so I opened my eyes because I thought my mom had come home, but I was alone in the room and I knew it was my dad. Oh, I remember you told me that. My sister-in-law has a friend who actually sees spirits. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we went on a chick trip not too long ago. And there was just, I think, five of us gals. And anyway, she was one of them and she's awesome. And she was saying how throughout her life, she has seen a man in a black coat and a little girl consistently, but she doesn't like it and she feels it's negative and she doesn't nurture it. Are they relatives? She doesn't know who they are. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So she says, fast forward. Her kids are older and she takes them to a country in Europe where she has relatives on one side of her family. And she learns that those relatives, like her uncles, I want to say, also see spirits. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they see this as a gift and they nurture it. And she saw it as a burden. I don't know if she would call it a burden, but it wasn't something like it scared her. She didn't want it. Yeah. It scared her when this happened. And it, it wasn't something that she developed and appreciated. Well, it would scare me too if I didn't know who they were. And you said she felt like this was a bad thing. It wasn't like my dad. Right. It was, there was some sort of malevolence. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that Sheila is seeing Angie standing there as real as anybody else amazes me. And it was funny because in some of the articles I read about this topic, you could tell the journalists were like, eh, are you sure? Were you sleeping? Was it, you know? Were you drinking? Yeah. And Sheila was like, nope, wide awake. So interesting. It's that interesting. interesting. Like, all this kind of stuff like interests me. Yeah. So Sheila took the vision as a call to action. And she said in this article, Kat, that she literally reached over, picked up the phone and called the Dallas Police Department. According to Sheila, that was the first of many calls that went without any really substantive response. One thing she was told was that Angie's rape kit was lost in a Dallas flood because, of course, in 2010, when she was looking back at the experience, she's thinking, oh, maybe DNA can help this. And Kath, I was looking into the Dallas floods and it looks like it floods in Dallas a lot. But in 1989, there was a particularly horrific flood. So I don't know if that's what they were referring to specifically, but that was as close as I got to being able to like figure out what the time frame was. Interesting. Sheila believed that the rape kit was lost. And as you know, in 2010, she was bummed because she knows now about DNA. So she starts doing research on rapes that happened that period in various locations with various arrestees. And she was going to do her best to help solve Angie's murder. At one point, she was complaining to the security guard. She lived in a gated community and she was saying, I'm upset that the police aren't taking me seriously. Nobody seems to be caring, blah, 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 blah. And the security guard goes, oh, you should become a private investigator. Maybe if you get licensed, they'll take you seriously then. So she goes back to her husband and she's like, hey, honey, I'm going to become a PI. And he's like, "Okay, (laughs) All right, Petunia, whatever you want. 
But it's funny because police officers don't like PIs for the most part. Well, I mean, Sheila didn't know that apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Neither did the security guard. <laughs> well, not all police don't like PIs. No, they just I said mostly. Yeah, that's true. On any TV show I've seen, the police that's exactly not you know like the private eyes. That is exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so Sheila did actually get licensed as a private eye. It turned out that did not particularly help. <laughs> huh. I guess the TV shows have it right. I mean, I guess I have it right. <laughs> So according to Sheila, she kept calling the Dallas police about Angie's case, but got no response. At some point, the cold case was eventually assigned to Detective Linda Crum. One of the things, Cap, that Sheila was supposedly told was like, hey, we don't have a cold case unit. It gets assigned to our homicide detectives. And so if that is, in fact, the case, I'm sure those detectives were already very, very busy. Yeah, I can imagine those go to the bottom of their to-do list. Yeah. And so Detective Linda Crum was characterized in the appellate record as a cold case detective. So at some point they must have created it. My assumption, too. According to court records, in July of 2006, Detective Crum received a call from Sheila. And from there, Detective Crum called the Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences and learned that the rape kit had been preserved and included in it were Angie's so fingernails and clothing over 22 years after her murder. Detective Crum called Sheila to let her know that the evidence from the rape kit had been preserved. And of course, Sheila was completely shocked and very excited. The DNA was run through CODIS, the FBI's database, and in 2008 came back with a hit. So the detective called Sheila to let her know. And according to Sheila, the detective said, we got him. Sheila was waiting for her to say Russell Buchanan, but instead she said Donald Andrew Bess, a totally unfamiliar name. Donald Bess would have been 36 at the time of Angie's murder six feet tall, weighing 260 pounds, according to his driver's license. At the time of the phone call, he was 59 years old and serving a life sentence in Huntsville, Texas, for his third sexual assault, the last one having occurred on June 14, 1985, just two years after Angie's murder. But this was sexual assault. This wasn't murder. Correct. He could have raped her, but somebody else still could have killed her. Possibly. Within a couple weeks of the DNA hit, Detective Crum went to the prison to serve a search warrant on him for his DNA. But before that, she interviewed Bess and eventually told him that she was investigating a murder from October of 1984. Once she told him this, his demeanor completely changed. He signed a written statement talking about his time in Dallas in 1984 and the women he met there. In it, he wrote, quote, I remember another girl I met at a bar, but I don't remember anything about her, end quote. He denied ever being violent with women during sex. Detective Crum got Bess's cheek swab, and it was a match to the semen found on Angie's rape kit. As a result, prosecutors filed capital murder charges against Bess. Jury selection began on June 2, 2010. Bess was charged with murder during the commission of an aggravated sexual assault making it subject to the death penalty. The prosecution did not know where Bess found Angie. Some believed he spotted her in a crowded bar that night. And because of the crowds, remember everyone was there for the Texas OU game, following her home would have been easier. The defense could not fight the DNA, 
So instead, they presented a case of consensual sex happening well before Angie's murder, suggesting that perhaps a jealous man came over later and killed her. A serologist who testified on behalf of the prosecution essentially excluded all four previous male suspects as Angie's attacker. Two had the wrong blood type and two were non-secretors. And remember, we talked about non-secretors. That's when you secrete blood type antigens into bodily fluids other than blood. So two of the guys were non-secretors, so they were excluded. The medical examiner and an OBGYN sexual assault expert testified that a lack of trauma to Angie's body did not mean the intercourse was consensual. Also, it appeared that the condition of the semen suggested it was deposited at the same time as her death. Although a murder weapon was never found and there were no usable fingerprints, the prosecution said it doesn't matter because then a DNA expert got up and identified Donald Bess as being the contributor of the semen. The defense retained a forensic pathologist, Dr. Trainer, who testified that there was no evidence that the sex had occurred shortly before death. And Kathy went to great lengths to talk about the lifespan of sperm in various situations, which we're not going to get into here. <laughs> I would hate to be on that jury. Seriously. Are you allowed to nap if you're a juror? <laughs> Seriously, I've never served on a jury. I don't know. No. If okay. somebody's napping, the trial stops, they take a break. Oh, really? Yeah. People do calisthenics in the courtroom, like jump up and down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, you're not allowed to snooze. You're not supposed to. And if the judge sees it, he stops it. The judges usually like throw books at people. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was thinking he'd be snoozing like, seriously, Oh, lady? yeah, exactly. They're pinching themselves to stay awake. Anyway, Dr. Trainer testified that the evidence was not consistent with a sexual assault, but rather consensual sex. Dr. Trainer reviewed the autopsy and photographs and said that the number of stab wounds suggested to him that this was overkill, a result of a jealous frenzy. Basically, what the defense is doing is saying, okay, we can't argue with the DNA. It is what it is. Our client had sex with Angie. And then after that, someone who was jealous, perhaps a boyfriend, actually came over afterwards and killed her. On June 14th, 2010, the jury returned its verdict, finding 61-year-old Donald Bess guilty of capital murder. The next day, the penalty phase of the trial began. We've talked about this before. In the penalty phase, the defense introduces mitigating circumstances designed to sort of explain why this happened. The prosecution introduces aggravating circumstances designed to show why this individual should get the death penalty. And a lot of the evidence that comes in during the penalty phase would never be admissible during the guilt phase because it's too prejudicial. Thank you for that, Professor. Why I said it is beyond me. You're the one who's an attorney. <laughs> Going to law school with Kim no, no, Kardashian no. and all. Remember, I, I took the baby bar. That's right. I'm a, King Car I'm a Kim Kardashian bar taker. That's right. They should really rename that. <laughs> the Kardashian baby bar. Exactly. And by the way, a baby bar is what you take when you go to a law school that is not accredited. That's what happens. Or when you're not going to law school and you're just studying under an attorney. Under, exactly. Like back when my dad went to Southwestern, they were not accredited, so he had to take the baby bar. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, among other facts, the defendant brought out through various witnesses that Bess's father was an encyclopedia sales representative who traveled a lot. Speaking of my dad, as we just did, uh -huh. my dad was an encyclopedia salesman for like 10 minutes. It was one of his many jobs 
This was when he was single. He was a truck driver, a construction worker, an encyclopedia salesman, a substitute teacher, all these things. Wow, that's amazing. I never knew that. Oh, yeah. He did all these kind of things and then claims adjuster and then eventually went to law school. But a lot of jobs he did for like five seconds. When Bess was young, his family moved around quite frequently and he attended 13 different schools growing up. As a result, he had very few friends. Both parents had short fuses and his mother was an angry alcoholic who may have been mentally ill. They also brought out the fact that he had a very bad heart and had had a heart attack just before trial, so he was not physically well enough to be a danger to anyone. Although the prosecution put on many witnesses to prove aggravating circumstances, they intended to prove that Bess was still a danger to society, making the death penalty an appropriate sentence. The jurors heard from two crucial witnesses, Bess's first two victims. In a quiet courtroom, a woman identified by the initials BF testified that in September of 1977, this was seven years before Angie's murder, she lived in the Montrose section of Houston in an apartment owned by Donald Bess's aunts. Late in the evening of September 1st, Bess came to her door and asked for a glass of water. When she turned to get him the water, he stepped inside and locked her door behind him. After she gave him the water, he grabbed her face with his hand, covered her mouth, and told her to go to the bedroom where he raped her. Although she was in shock, BF called a friend who took her to the police station. She told police that she was able to bite Bess's hand, and two weeks later, she identified him in a police lineup. Eight months before BF's ordeal, Elizabeth Clegg was grabbed from behind off the street as she was walking to her car. She was forced at knife point to take him to her apartment. So, Kath, she started by trying to lie about where she lived, but I think by the hesitation, he sensed it. So he grabbed her purse and pulled out her driver's license. He took her to her house, raped her, threatened her, and then drove her back to her vehicle that was parked at the scene of the abduction. Elizabeth also went to the police and described her attacker as 25 to 30 years old, 6 feet tall, and 230 pounds. Once Bess was arrested for BF's attack, Elizabeth Clegg identified him as her attacker. In 1978, he pled guilty to both attacks and took a plea deal of 25 years. Kath, one thing I read about this was that this woman was raped in 1977 and she's brought into court in 2010 to testify during the penalty phase. She specifically told reporters, publish my name. She specifically gave them permission to write her name in their articles, which I loved because she was basically saying, this happened. It's not my fault. No shame on me. Say my name. Good for her. That's courageous. Exactly. Now, despite the lengthy sentence, Bess was paroled in March of 1984, having served fewer than seven years. At the time of Angie's murder, Kath, he had been out of prison for only seven months. On a 25-year sentence. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And after that, we know he went on to commit at least one more rape after Angie. It would be this third conviction that would send him to prison for life, which is where he was when Detective Crumb found him. According to an article published on June 18, 2010, by Jennifer Emily of the Dallas Morning News, during closing argument in the penalty phase, prosecutor Josh Healy said, If Donald Bess isn't deserving of a death sentence, then who is? And Kath, several jurors nodded. Dang. (laughs) Did the defense just kind of throw up their briefcases and go, okay, we're out. We're out. Yep. (laughs) Peace out. I think they were like, ruh-roh, raggy. (laughs) 
I can't even imagine being one of the defense attorneys. Anyway, the article went on to say that Bess had two defense attorneys. And the first guy gets up and says, have mercy on my client, this kind of thing. The second one gets up and says, I won't ask for mercy. I just ask you to follow the law. If you do, there are mitigating circumstances that warrant a life sentence for Bess. And he said, my client's done bad things. I acknowledge that. Quote, once a jackass, always a jackass. Once a really bad person, always a really bad person. But the question you must decide is, always a murderer or not? Always a threat or not? <laughs> I think this was done intentionally so that Bess would get overturned on appeal by having I, ineffective counsel. Right. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sure the defense argument was longer and more eloquent, but the jury didn't buy it. On June 18, 2010, the jury returned its verdict, finding beyond a reasonable doubt that Bess deliberately caused Angie Samoda's death and found beyond a reasonable doubt he would be a continuing threat to society. So that was the answer yes to the defense attorney's question. That's exactly right. Not just a yes, a hell yes. A hell yes. They found Bess's character and background were insufficient mitigating circumstances to warrant a sentence of life imprisonment. They voted for the death penalty and the court imposed it. According to the BBC article by Sarah McDermott, Sheila Wysocki was present in court to see justice served for Angie. After the trial, she reached out to Russell Buchanan asking to talk about the past. When Sheila found out Russell didn't kill Angie, she said she felt her world turning upside down. For 23 years, she believed he was a murderer and she hated him. She felt so guilty and asked him to forgive her, which he did. And Kath, what he said was, you thought you were doing the right thing for a friend. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really understanding of him. It really is. It's very magnanimous. Yeah. And together, the two of them visited Angie's grave. Russell Buchanan became a successful architect in Dallas. Actually, Kath, he earned awards for home design, among other things. So he's pretty noteworthy. In 2012, he told journalist Christopher Wynn with the Dallas Morning News that he didn't know how he got through the investigation. He said he was directly accused and pressured to confess, and he had no idea what interrogations were like before that. Russell got a call from a sergeant with the Dallas Police Department who offered an official apology. He said, I'm looking through your file, and boy, Mr. Buchanan, you went through quite an ordeal. And this is a bit of a side note, Kath, but I really do like the restorative justice concept. And I like the fact that Sheila reached out to him and wanted to make amends. And my understanding is that they're still in touch. Although Russell felt relief after the verdict, he said he held no bitterness toward the Dallas police. In the article, he was quoted as saying, it wasn't their fault. If it was your daughter that had been killed, wouldn't you want the police department to use whatever means necessary to find the truth? I would. As far as I'm concerned, the Dallas Police Department does not owe me an apology. They never did. I'm grateful for the work and the service they did. That's it. Period. Is that not the most gracious outlook? In 2020, the verdict and death penalty were upheld on appeal. However, in October 2022, at the age of 74, Donald Best died in prison of a heart attack while on death row. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. <laughs> Rate us, review us, mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are allowed. Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Sit. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.